Alrighty, so we talked about the parole evidence rule today, and this is a bit different than criminal. It's spelled P-A-R-O-L. And what parole just means is that it's something that is oral or spoken. And so the parole evidence rule is just taking things that are spoken and restricting, excluding some of that evidence. So what I mean by this is contracts can be formed by any means. It can be formed by oral agreements, can be formed by a combination of informal written agreements, it can be formed by a formal written agreement. But the courts have a preference for formal written agreements, meaning they want contracts to be written down in one place, and the reason for that is because ultimately it, it leads to a more efficient economy. It's easier to discern what people want because, well, they wrote down what they want. And so the parole evidence rule takes all the oral contracts that are around one certain formal contract, and it decides what to exclude. And so this is an exclusionary rule. It's not an inclusionary rule, meaning we filter out what we don't want the contracts to say. And the reason for this is because we have this formal written agreement, and we don't want to alter this formal written agreement even if there may be other terms that we had talked about previously as part of negotiations about this formal written agreement. And so this really comes down to two sections. It's section 209 and section 210 of the uh, restatement second of contracts. Section 209 just pretty much says it defines what an integrated agreement is. And an integrated agreement is a writing or writings that constitute a final expression of one or more terms of an agreement. That's pretty much what we just said, is we're going to have a written agreement. 210 talks about what a completely integrated agreement is. A completely integrated agreement is, well, an integrated agreement that is adopted by the parties and deemed as complete and exclusive. Uh, It's a complete and exclusive statement of the terms of the agreement. And so for the parole evidence to apply, we need to actually see that there is this, uh, at least appears to be a completely uh, complete agreement, at least on its face. And a good way of actually making sure that an, an agreement appears complete is to have something that's called a merger clause. And a merger clause just pretty much says, we're taking all our written statements in our oral statements, and we're finalizing them into this one single document. So a merger clause could read something like, uh, all the terms inside this written agreement are all that is part of the agreement, and it excludes anything else that was said before or after this agreement. And this really leads into the cases that we have. So we have Thompson v. Libby, we have Taylor versus State Farm Mutual Automa- Auto uh, Insurance, Taylor v. State Farm. And then we have a Sherrod versus Morrison Knudsen. So Thompson v. Libby, what happened here is that the person was selling logs, and they had an agreement. They wrote, wrote it down saying, I will sell you this many logs for this, for this much money, and <clears throat> probably to be delivered in can't remember the place, uh, but to be delivered. So they do this, and then uh, Libby fails to pay. 
and for the locks, and he claims that there was a uh, there was a warranty that was not included, and the logs were bad. And so Thompson uh, sues to get his money. And so Libby is making this argument saying the contract had a warranty. So do we include this oral agreement that they had about the warranty, or do we exclude this oral agreement? The parole evidence rule stated really simply is that any additional evidence, any parole evidence that varies or contradicts any term of the agreement is to be excluded. So you can see in this case, a warranty wasn't on this contract. This contract appeared complete on its face, and what that means is it had all the necessary terms. Uh, it had a price. It had uh, a method of delivery. Uh, it had what was going to be sold, and it had an agreement. But it didn't have the warranty. But this evidence that he's trying to include is the warranty. And so the parole evidence rule says that, well, this is adding, so it's varying, or it's contradicting a term of the contract, and so it can't be included. And so the warranty was not included in this contract. We have a similar thing with Taylor v. State Farm, where we're given two rules of the parole evidence rule. Uh, there's two different ways that you can look at it. The first way is called the four corners rule, which is you think of a piece of paper, it's got four corners. And so the four corners rule just says we're going to look at only what is on this paper if it's plain and if the language is simple. Uh, well, maybe not simple, but plain language is a good way of putting that. In order for the parole exclusionary rule to have an exception, so to speak, the document must be ambiguous. So the first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the paper, say, is anything on here ambiguous? And if anything on there is ambiguous, well, then you can actually include some of the parole evidence. For our class, we're going to be focusing on this four corners rule because, well, it's simpler. And two, uh, it, it may make more sense, it may not. The second rule is the Corbin rule. Uh, what they do is that they first allow all the evidence. So all the parole evidence can be admitted into the court. Then after the parole evidence is admitted, the court filters out what adds or varies to the contract and then keeps anything that interprets the contract. And so in Taylor v. State Farm, and the court adopted this Corbin rule. So what we're really learning from this, from these two cases, is that there's a difference between adding or interpreting. And so Thompson v. Libby was an instance where the evidence attempted to add to the contract, and Taylor v. State Farm is where the evidence was attempting to interpret a part of the contract. And so the parole evidence rule doesn't allow you to add or vary, but it does allow you to interpret. And that's really what this case was all about. Our final case was uh, Sherrod v. Morrison Knudsen. What happened here is that there was a subcontractor and, the, and a sub-subcontractor, and the sub-subcontractor is suing the subcontractor. And the reason for that is because they said that there was 25,000 uh, cubic feet of land that needed to be cleared. 
and the sub-subcontractor kind of took their word for it. Uh, started clearing the land before the agreement was signed and a whole bunch of issues that ended up happening there because, well, it ended up being about double that, but it wasn't paid double that. And so ultimately, things did not go very well for this person. But we learned from this case that there are a couple of instances where the parole exclusionary rule does not apply. The first instance is if there's a mistake of fact. Uh, the second instance is if there's fraud. The majority in this case says that for fraud, the evidence is not admissible. So even if there's fraud, the parole exclusionary rule will apply if the oral promise directly contradicts a provision within the contract. So the parole evidence rule still applies even when there is fraud. It just has to be very particular. Uh, the dissent disagreed with the majority in this case, saying that all evidence of fraud should be taken into consideration. And the fear with that is because if you don't take the evidence into consideration, well, then a uh, company could just say, here, sign here, by fraud, by cunning, whatever it might be. And as long as they get the signature, well, then you can't include any evidence of fraud. The reason why fraud was an issue in this case was because uh, he had already done half the work before signing the contract, and he was told, just sign the contract, we'll make sure you're taken care of, and if you don't sign the contract, you're not being paid for what you've done already. And by that point, he had already done about $70,000 worth of work. And so he was in fear of not getting paid and was promised that they'd be taken care of, and so he signed the contract. So that's what the parole evidence rule is. Let's sum everything up. The first thing I want to mention, big takeaway number one, is that the parole evidence rule is a principle of interpretation. The whole goal of the rule is to interpret what is going on in the contract by excluding things that add or vary and only allowing what is allowed to interpret. So that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is that the parole evidence rule applies to completely integrated agreements, meaning if it's incomplete or if it's ambiguous, any evidence that completes it can be included. So that's going to be through in 209, 210, and that includes the merger rule. And then from our cases, we learned that we're going to be using the four corners rule. Again, that's the ambiguous part. And then the exceptions to the, uh, to the, uh, to the rule, rule is uh, mistake of fact and fraud. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.